Um, the time of refreshment that me and my family had for the past week was fantastic. Um, all I did was slept uh, the whole time. I even took like midday naps. I didn't realize that was a thing. Um, but I did it, and it was glorious. If you are able to do it, I recommend it highly. Um, I Just a whole new world opened up to me. Um, and so uh, I can't do it every day, but when I can, I'll definitely do it. Um, for those of you that are inquired, uh, have inquired, uh, the cleanse is over. Um, you know, no more eating curried eggplant for the Lewises. We, uh, we made it through our cleanse, and so that's been fantastic. The very first thing I ate out of my cleanse was sardines. Um, thank you very much, Kelly Henry. And um, uh, I know some people think sardines are a yucky food, but they're not. They're super food, like blueberry, kale, and Chick-fil-A sauce. Um, all those things uh, kind of go together to help uh, in, in, you know, in cleansing your body. Um, today's lesson, we've been doing a summer through the psalm series, as most of you know. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 139. So please turn to Psalm 139. And this psalm is an absolute, uh, absolutely glorious psalm. I know I say it about every psalm. Um, and it's true of this one as well. It's just, it's a wonderful, glorious psalm um, of David. And the psalm is actually an expression of, of David's response to God's attributes. That's what this psalm is. It's just an expression of David's response to God's attributes and who they are. And there's about six attributes of God that we see in this psalm. I'm not sure we're going to get to all of them. But if you want to, if we don't get to all of them over the next three weeks, and by the way, we're going to be looking at this psalm over the next three weeks, and then we'll start another study um, at the beginning of September. But you can probably go through and study it for yourself, these attributes. And I'm just going to give them to you right now. So there's, there are about six attributes inside here. The first, if you look at verse 1 through verse 6, you have the omniscience of God, right? You have the omniscience of God on display. Omniscience simply means that God knows everything, every aspect of us. And that's in verse 1 through 6. And actually, omniscience will be the theme that David carries throughout the entire psalm. But it's always in connection to all the other attributes of God. So if you go to verse number 7 through 12, that, um, that shows the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is everywhere. If we're in heaven or if we descend down into hell, wherever we go, the, um, David is saying God is there. Then if you look at verse number 13 through 16, we have the omnipotence of God, the fact that God is mighty, he has complete control over his creation, and it's seen in the fact that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then if you look at verse number 17 and 18, you have the incomprehensibility of God, the fact that God is beyond our capabilities or our understanding. His thoughts are far too much for us. And then if you drop down to verse number 19 through 22, you have the wrath of God. As the Bible says, uh, David is saying, God, slay the wicked for their wickedness. Um, and then in verse 23 and 24, you have the holiness of God, where David is saying, Lord, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. This is a call to holiness, and it reflects the holiness of God. So that's the six. I hope to deal with the omniscience, the omnipresence, and the omnipotence over the next three weeks. And I encourage you in your own private Bible study to look at the incomprehensibility of God, the wrath of God, and the holiness of God. 
but make sure you have God's omniscience as your umbrella there. All right, everybody got that? I know you took perfect notes. I'm going to be checking in on that later. Now we're going to read God's holy inspired word. And let me just say this before I read. Guys, I, I have the privilege, I, I, you know, I think I counted a great privilege to preach God's word and to be your pastor and to be up here communicating God's word to you. I, I, I really missed it the week I was off. You know, I thought, man, I, I get a little break, maybe I could relax. And I'm sitting down there and i like, oh, man, I miss it. I miss being up here communicating um, the faith, the truths of this book to you. And then to have you communicate them to me in so many different uh, ways. And I thank Carl for being up here. I watched it, um, and it was amazing. And, and thank you so much for preaching to our people. And, um, and so I'm just excited. I'm like a kid in a candy store every Sunday. I get to come and share God's word. All right, I'm going to shut up now, and I'm going to read God's word. Please pay attention to God's word. It is holy and inspired. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O man of blood, depart from me. They speak against against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. All flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass will wither and the flower will fade. 
But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, open up our eyes now that we might behold wondrous things from your word. And please, O Lord, help us as your people not to be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word, lovers of the word. Bless us now, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. As I mentioned at the very beginning, I'm just going to look at the first six verses of this chapter. As I look at the subject of the omniscience of God, the fact that God is all-knowing, And I want to talk about, and I want us to see how David takes this glorious attribute of God, his omniscience, and apply it to our lives. And for us to do that today, I want to look at, observe three truths about the subject of omniscience. First, I want to look at the basics of omniscience, the blessing of omniscience, and the beauty of omniscience. And all of these are in this passage. First of all, let's look at the basics of omniscience, verse 1 down to verse number four. Now, what do we mean when we say that uh, we talk about the basics of God's omniscience? Well, what we're talking about is how it is that God knows all things. How, how, how is this possible? What does that mean? And of course, how does it apply to our life? Now, if you begin this verse, if you look at chapter um, Uh, The first verse in this passage, it says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me, exclamation point. Now, that's a bit strange, right? Because David's response to the fact that God knows him in an in-depth, complete fashion is one of excitement and joy. That's what the exclamation point is in there. Does anybody have a, have a translation that doesn't have an exclamation point at the end of it? I'm pretty, okay, there are a few of you, one, of, one or two of you. Most translations actually have the exclamation point at the end. And I think that's, a right, uh, that's the right way to translate it because all the words here seem to indicate that David is excited about the fact that God has known him completely. This is not, uh, in David's mind, this is not something for us to be afraid of, but David is excited over. Now, the reason why I say this is completely surprising, at least to me, is because if you think of how the subject of God's omniscience and the fact that people know us in-depthly, how it's received in our society, I got to tell you, it's completely different from excitement. I don't know about you, but when I was a little kid and I heard the song Santa Claus is coming to town, you know, he knows when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. That was kind of creepy to me. I mean, I I know, like, people sing it with joy, but I was, like, kind of creeped out as a kid. I was like, I don't want, like, this weird guy in a suit knowing that much about me. That, That really sounded creepy, right? And then as I got older and I learned about, you know, I read books like 1984, the Orwell novel, and then I heard about the NSA um, having this capability of knowing my conversations, right? And and the prospect of this totalitarian, how do I say that word? Totalitarian government, that's it. This this totalitarian government um, exercising this complete oversight over over me. I have to tell you, I responded to that in fear. I didn't want a government knowing that much about me. I was fearful. 
And then, you know, um, when I learned that tech companies were mining my information and then working with social science to, like, manipulate how long I stay on their site, and then, you know, I just think about a new pair of sneakers and it pops up as, a, as an option. I'm like, how are they able to do this, right? I responded in anger. I don't want Google knowing everything about me or the tech companies knowing everything about me. And then, you know, on, on the flip side of that, you know, you have people that are exposed by newspapers papers and exposed by tabloids that bring about a great deal of shame on their life. And so in our society, I don't know about you, but when I think about, um, think about the fact that people know so much about me and who I am, I respond to that in fear. I get a little creepy, uh, creeped out about that. I get angry. I feel ashamed that this is happening. And to some level, I get it. I understand why we feel this way. The reason why we feel this way is because we know that if people really knew who we were, if they knew our thoughts, if they knew our actions, if they knew the things that we say, that they would judge us, they would misunderstand us, they would shun us, they would look down on us or make fun of us. Worse, they'll try and exploit us. And so when we come to the doctrine of God's omniscience, we respond in fear We respond in anger. We get a little creep out because to us, we are afraid that God might exploit us. You know, the irony of all of this is we normally, our fears, our anger, our frustration, all of these things at the thought of people really knowing who we are. The reason why I think we respond in that way, because sadly, some of us, we exploit people based on what we know about them. That there's a temptation in our own hearts that once we know something about someone, we, we put them at arm's length. You know, I, I remember one time meeting an individual, and um, he's, you know, he seemed to be a very nice person, and, and all of a sudden, like, somebody said, hey, you know, um, this person is a registered sex offender. And, and they harmed um, little children. And I remember, even, like, beforehand, I didn't know that. And so now I knew this bit of information. I instinctively treated this person different. All of us do that, right? If we know each other and if we know if we believe a certain thing or we act a certain way in private, people might shun us, and we're afraid of that. We're afraid that if people really know who we are, They'll run for the hills. So this is a natural fear. But David says, no, no, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know everything there is to know about me. Now, the words search and known are such important words. And the only only way I could communicate how in-depth this is, in terms of my own experience, was when I became a U.S. citizen. Right Now, the process to becoming a U.S. citizen, if you've never gone through it, let me tell you, it is incredibly invasive. Okay, I remember writing these things down um, as I thought about them. So aside from the travel right, and the money, to become an American citizen, you have to take a blood test, a language test, a civics test, a full medical examination, and on top of that, biometrics. Right, And then you have to do that multiple times. Now... 
In addition to that, you have like this massive paperwork and forms that are just absolutely incredible. And they want to know everything from the moment you were born to right now. And the funny thing is, my wife pointed this out. Every time I walked in, my file was bigger than last time. You know, it's like twice as big as it was the last time we came in. To the point when I finally got my American citizenship, my file was no kidding this big. And I'm like, honey, I don't think I told them that information, right? So, so by the time I became a U.S. citizen, the U.S. government knew more about me than I knew about myself, right? And so after they determined that I wasn't a threat, they said, hey, you could become an American citizen. Well, that's great. I was excited. Right? May 14, 2014, I became an American citizen. Well, in the same way, David is saying, God, you've searched me like that. You've known me like that. And now I get to become a citizen of heaven. You search me, and you know me, and you know my sin, and then you did the work to redeem me. But there's one critical difference between the kind of searching and knowing that the U.S. government does to make us citizens and the kind of searching and knowing that God does. And here's the biggest difference. The U.S. government granted me citizenship because I wasn't a threat to them. After that whole process I went through, they determined I wasn't a threat to them, and so they gave me citizenship. But, beloved, God granted us citizenship even though we were a threat to him and his kingdom. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Notice what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that as a result of Christ's death and resurrection, we who were once enemies of the kingdom of God, we who were once estranged from the kingdom of God, has now been brought nigh and reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this reconciliation is complete and utter. That you and I now are brought near as a result of Christ. And notice how thorough this is. Verse number two. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, so you discern my thoughts from afar. That God knows our thoughts. He knows our thoughts. Now, the, our thoughts are walled off from each other, are they not? You know, if I could have any power as a, super, as a pastor, um, it would be the power to know your thoughts. Because oftentimes when I'm preaching or counseling or teaching, I'm like, man, I wonder what that person's thinking. They're giving me like a weird look, you know? I just, I just wish I knew what they were thinking. And then sometimes I'm like, really, I don't want to. You know, I want to, you know, ignorance is bliss, as it were, right? But, but as, as a pastor, I depend on you communicating to me your thoughts truthfully and rightly. Why? So I could bring the word of God to bear on our conversation and what's happening. But I don't know what your thoughts are. I don't. They're walled off from me. Contrary to popular belief, pastors don't read minds. So I need you to communicate your thoughts to me so I know how, and how to pray for you, how to love you well, and how to serve you through the ministry of the word. But the word of God tells us that God doesn't need that mediary. 
right? He doesn't need to be told where our thoughts is. David says he knows them. And even more in verse number three, David says, you not only know my thoughts, God, but you know my ways. You know the things that I do, even the things that I do in secret. And then he goes on to say, God, you know the things I say when nobody else hears them. Notice, beloved, how personal, immediate, and comprehensive this knowledge is. God says, I know you completely. And here's the best part. Even though I know you completely and I know you're a sinner, I still love you. And I still want to make you a citizen of the kingdom. I still want to enter into covenant with you. That is the glorious aspect of the omniscience of God, that even though he knows us completely, he still wants to be in covenant. He still wants to be in relationship with us. That's the basics of omniscience. Notice also the blessings of omniscience. Drop down to verse number five. David says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand Upon me. What is David saying here? Well, both of the imagery of hemming in and laying your hands down are the imagery of blessings. You say, Pastor, how? Well, the, the English word ham comes from a Hebrew word meaning um, to besiege. And maybe you have uh, in your Bibles, you might have that word besiege there. It's a military term. But I think, I think the translators of the ESV got it right. They use the word ham. Now, most of you are familiar with the term ham, like the ham of pants. It's like a sewing, sewing term. I remember when I was grow, growing up, my mother always used to buy our sizes two, pant, uh, two sizes too big. She used to buy our pants two sizes too big. And she used to, like, bunch it up here and then hem it. And then she would hem, like, the bottom so they come, like, halfway. And you go to school and everyone's making fun of you. Like, why is your ham all the way up here? I'm like... Dude, my mother's cheap, and, you know, she just, there's nothing I could do about it. And, and my mother was an excellent sewer. She, she never used um, a machine. She always did it by hand. And, man, that thing was just stitched in so, so securely. In fact, when it came, when we grew, when it came time to let out the ham, she had to use a razor, right? Because it was so secure, it was so tight. That's what David is saying here. God, you've blessed me so much that you've hemmed me in behind and before. And here's how the imagery is applied to us. David is saying, God, you have, you have walled off the sins of the past. God, you've, you've hemmed off the shame of the past. That, that all of those things that happened in my past that I look back on and I'm ashamed of or I'm frustrated over or I'm angry over. God, you've, you've hemmed that off. And now those things don't control me anymore. I'm a new creature. I can press forward in your love and in your grace and in your mercy. But not only that, David is saying, look, God, you've also hemmed the future. You've hemmed the future. That you know what is going to happen. All the unknowns of the future, I'm secured before, that, that all the unknowns about the future are secured before me. And I can rest in you. I don't have to worry about what's going to happen in the future because you've hemmed that I'm in your sovereign care. And, and look, it gets gooder. Go to Romans chapter 8. I know it's bad English. It's not gooder, kids. It's, it's better. 
Um, just trying to see if you're paying attention. All right, Romans chapter 8. Go to Romans chapter 8. I want to show you something. This, this is so cool. This is so cool. Go to Romans chapter 8. Now, in Romans chapter 8, right, most people, when they quote Romans chapter 8, they quote Romans 8.28. And it's a glorious verse. It's a wonderful verse. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that's where so many of us stop. Now, if we stop there and that's all you need and that's all you know, that's glorious. But it gets gooder. And here's why. Here's why. Right? Remember, it's, it's better. Um, so here's why. How do we know that all things work together for good for those who love God? How do we know that? How can you be confident that all the things that are happening in your life right now and all the uncertainty in the future, how do you know that all these things are secure? The very next verse, verse number 29. How do we know all things work together for good and our future is secured? This is why. For those whom he foreknew, this taps into the omniscience of God, the fact that God is all-knowing. This taps into that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God. That's what David is saying. That's what um, Paul is saying here. He's saying that the reason why we know that all things work together for good is because we know that God has foreknown us and, and, and had predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's omniscience, his foreknowledge has hemmed us in and we know for a fact that because we, the future is hemmed in uh, before us, we know that based on God's foreknowledge and his plan to make us in to the image of Christ, and therefore that's a blessing to us as people. But notice also, not, not just the imagery of hemming in, but notice David also talks about the issue of laying your hand upon me. This is taken uh, straight out of the blessing culture where you have the father as he dies, brings his children in and lays his hand on, on them and bless them. And David is saying, God, I don't deserve this blessing, this blessing of your protection and in your foreknowledge um, placed upon me. That's the blessing. That's the blessing. Now, lastly, and I'll make this quick, notice the beauty of God's omniscience. Verse number six. David responds to all of this, this, this glorious truth that God hems us in and lays his hand upon us, and his omniscience is glorious and wonderful. He responds to that truth by saying, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. What David is doing here is he's breaking out in doxology. He's saying, God, I can't believe that you are this good and this gracious, and your thoughts toward me are this wonderful and glorious. Now, when we think of the term beautiful, something that's beautiful, we normally think of something... Um, we normally think of something that's, you know, that's physical. Like on my drive here, one of the things I, I just enjoy doing in the morning is every time I come to church, when I come out of my subdivision and I look to the left, there's Lookout Mountain, right? And it's just gorgeous the way the sun reflects off that mountain. I could look at that. That's how we normally think of beauty. But there's another type of beauty, and that which is highly attractive or admirable in nature. There's something glorious and wonderful about this truth. And the situation that I'm in. 
Um, let me give you a for example. I, I was in the bathroom, and um, George, who is no respecter of bathroom person, um, he, comes, he comes barging in. I'm like, George, by the way, for those of you that don't know, George is my four-year-old, right? So he comes bursting in, and he's like, Dad, I need to talk to you. I'm like, oh, dude, I'm, I'm like in the bathroom here. And so, but he doesn't care, right? He's four years old. He just learned English. And, um, and, so, and so he says, Dad, I really need to talk to you. And I just, not too long, like, got up. And so I'm, like, a little dazed, like, what, what does this kid have to say? So I said, no, no okay, George, what, what do you want? What can, what can Daddy do for you? He says, no, I, I don't need you to do anything. I just want you to listen. Okay? And so I, I sat down, I listened to him. And for about 10 minutes, he just told me all of these random things. I mean, you know, he told me about, about the tree and the birds and the bees and all sorts of stuff in the tree and how he found a caterpillar and tried to keep it alive. And, and he just went down this litany of things as he was, he was talking to me. And in that moment, I, I just, I was overcome because this was beautiful. Here's my son desiring to talk to me, not want something from me, but just talk to me, just speak. Spend time with me and fellowship with me. Now, keep in mind, he has three other siblings, older siblings to contend with, so he's being strategic. Like, I'm going to get dad early because once he goes downstairs, that's it. I've lost him, you know. My other siblings can talk faster and more than me, and so I want this time with my, my father, and, and it was just beautiful. Hey, I want to tell you about another time when a son wanted to talk, about his, or talk with his father. Well, we have to go back about 2,000 years in a garden. And this son was getting ready um, to be betrayed and beaten and, and put on a cross. And in the midst of, of this really dark and difficult time, he begins to pour his heart uh, to his father in something that was just really beautiful. And he says, he says Father, I... I don't know what's going to happen, but, but it's not my will, but your will be done, right? And in that moment, Jesus, is, as he's pouring out his heart to his father and letting him know that he's, he's willing to submit to his sovereign care and his sovereign hand, we have this beautiful imagery that I think David is showing us here. That, that in response to the omniscience of God, this, you have this beautiful moment where David is saying, God, please, this is, this is glorious. This is wonderful. I'm willing. I'm able to submit fully and completely to you. Now, now that, that mindset is completely opposite from our first parents, Adam and Eve, in which Adam and Eve, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they didn't think about submitting to the omniscience of God. They wanted, they wanted that for themselves, and so they disobeyed. And so what's beautiful in this passage and what's beautiful that Jesus showed us is that there's something sweet and gorgeous and wonderful about us just putting all of our life, our plans, our goals, our money, our desires completely underneath the sovereign care of the Lord. That's beautiful. And I encourage you to do that each and every day. Go to God and say, God, such knowledge of who you are is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your attributes and how they are seen through 
your omniscience, that you know us, you know everything there is to know about us, and yet you still love us. You still care for us. We are still yours. Help us now in humble obedience to reflect that back to you. Thank you for your goodness and grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.